Welcome to MVP on the Fly, where we know you're busy but thirsty to learn. This is Dr. Brian Hamm, a boarded internal medicine specialist, and I'm here to bring you clinically relevant information that you can use in clinical practice. Welcome back, everybody. I appreciate you guys tuning into the show today. I have got Dr. Stephanie Pierce, a boarded internal medicine specialist, back with us today. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Pierce. Hi, Dr. Ham. Thanks so much for having me back. Absolutely. We know that uh, you are full of a lot of really good knowledge, so we like having you on. I think today we should talk a little bit about diabetes and how it affects our pets. Okay, great. So diabetes mellitus. This is a pretty common endocrine disease in pets, right? Dogs and cats. Probably most of us know this, but just a reminder with diabetes mellitus in dogs, typically they have what we would call in humans type 1 diabetes. Again, we've talked a lot with these endocrine diseases about immune-mediated destruction of the organ. So most of the time in dogs, it's younger dogs that get diagnosed, younger to middle-aged dogs that get diagnosed with diabetes. Typically, it's because the immune system has attacked and destroyed the cells that produce insulin in the pancreas. On the flip side, so sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, so that's why when a dog becomes diabetic, it's diabetic forever. Like the pancreas is done. It's, they've killed out the, uh, the cells there that make the insulin and, and then therefore they can't, they can't recover from it. Right. No more beta cells for those guys. And so they need lifelong insulin therapy even, right? So the diet and the oral therapies and things like that, that you can sometimes get away with in a cat, which we'll talk about in a second. Really, you can't get away with in a dog because they just have an absolute deficiency of insulin yep. most of the time. I mean, we can't ever say that it always is that way, but the vast majority of times that's what it's going to be. And sometimes it's genetic. Sometimes it can occur chronic, uh, secondary to chronic pancreatitis um, in dogs. So those are also some reasons. But, you know, in cats, we have the flip side, right? So whereas, you know, the dogs have more like a type 1 diabetes Cats have more like a type 2 diabetes, which is, of course, what we know is being so prevalent in the United States. And that's a state of more of an insulin resistance. So their pancreas has the ability to make insulin, but because of chronically elevated sugars, they have a resistance of insulin uptake into their cells. And also then that glucose, that high glucose is directly toxic to those beta cells. And so then the beta cells stop producing insulin because of that as well. And so that's what we usually see in our cats. And that's why cats sometimes can go into remission with their diabetes, which which we'll talk about as we go through with treatment. Yeah. So, what, I mean, we see this a lot. We see it in, uh, we see it in general practice quite a bit. In fact, Really, at the specialty level, we didn't see a ton of like newly diagnosed diabetics. We oftentimes uh, were sent the ones that were complicated that couldn't be regulated or were DKA. But this is this is definitely a common uh, diagnosis at the general practice level. So they're going to come in with those classic signs of PUPD, polyphagia, weight loss. They may start having urinary accidents in the house or frequent urinary tract infections. And then as you're doing your blood work, you're going to start picking up on those telltale signs that they're diabetic. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, cats can trick you, right? Because Cats just have a redistribution of their body weight. They have a lot of loss of muscle, mm-hmm. and, but they're still little chubby creatures <laughs> when they're diabetic. A lot of times, right, it takes a pretty long time for a diabetic cat to really have profound weight loss. Yep. The dogs, yes, not the cats. So also make sure even if the cat's weight's the same, 
that you're assessing their body condition score and their muscle condition score, because that can trip you up sometimes because they will just have a shift, you know, from loss of muscle and being then just a little more fluffy. <laughs> right. And then the cats with litter boxes, sometimes, you know, some of the most common signs, the PUPD may be hard to notice because they're off drinking when you're not looking. They're using a litter box. Some owners do notice a sudden increase in volume of urine in the box. So if they mm -hmm. come in talking about that, that would definitely be one of the things you'd want to be looking for is, is diabetes. Right. Yeah. And I mean, of course, if you're suspicious of it, with I think practitioners are really good at picking up on most of the signs of you know diabetes and screening for it. So of course, as we know, you need to run your baseline blood panel, your CBC, your chemistry, and your urinalysis. And hallmark signs of diabetes are going to be your elevated blood sugar, your hypoglycemia, with then glucose in the urine. Yep. And you may go on to find a urinary tract infection because those high sugars in the urine are a great resource for bacteria to grow. And you may find ketones. So if they've been diabetic for quite some time and they shifted their pathway for making energy because they don't have insulin to pull the sugars into the cell. So they may have ketones in the urine. You may pick up that on the, uh, the UA as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, of course, the tricky part gets into when we have to move beyond the CBC chemistry and the urinalysis and we have to start, you know, what's really hard about diabetes in dogs and cats, in my opinion, is not so much making the diagnosis, right? The hard part is regulating them and figuring out the best way to treat them and their doses of insulin that are needed and diet and exercise. And then for cats, you know, trying some of the other oral medications and things like that. And then also can't forget that you have to look for underlying diseases too, because underlying diseases, we already mentioned chronic pancreatitis, and that can be in the dog or the cat that can lead to diabetes eventually. Not only are underlying diseases potentially going to be associated with diabetes, but underlying diseases are also going to make your diabetic patient really difficult to regulate. And those are things like what, I mean, what do you see, Brian? I mean, Cushing's is I, the one, in the dog, Cushing's is the one that jumps out that really makes sure. our life complicated with diabetics because sometimes when they first come in, again, we make the diagnosis of diabetes and some of the blood work can, you know, you could have elevated liver enzymes with a poorly regulated diabetic, especially if they were having ketosis. So sometimes we're started, we're left with treating what's in front of us, which is the diabetes, but then we just don't get there. We don't get the regulation. And then, you know, a month, two months down the road, we're scratching our head and saying, hmm, I wonder if these guys don't have Cushing's as well. And until right. you get that Cushing's under control, you're not going to get the diabetes under control, not effectively. Right. Absolutely. And kidney disease, too. Right. Renal disease, definitely going to make it difficult to regulate your diabetes, even chronic infections. You know, to the point I had a couple of cases where they had severe dental disease and that was all we could find. And when the patients got their teeth fixed up, their diabetes became much easier to regulate. Again, that's a one-off. That's not very likely because I saw tons and tons of patients with profound dental disease that could be well-regulated. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, those it can be something as, as simple as that. Right. No, no, I totally agree. You know, there's um, the, the weight issue. So the more weight that they gain or that they have on them, the, the more insulin resistance you can get. So Getting them to lose weight if they are overweight, if they haven't already dropped weight, like the, for example with the dog, if they haven't dropped a bunch of weight, getting them to lose weight and then exercise. Exercise and moving around actually makes your insulin more effective. So becoming active can really help with diabetic regulation as well. 
Right. Yeah. So getting the cats to lose weight and you need a behavioral specialist for that because it's not my area of expertise. <laughs> but getting a cat to do more exercise definitely is helpful. And, and in fact, with dogs, even though, too, you have to be cognizant of exercise because if you've got a dog that's well regulated with its diabetes and then lo and behold, it becomes spring like it is now and you take the dog to the dog park and it exercises really hard, it may not need as much insulin those days because it's blood sugar is, you know, potentially going to go down. So you do have to try to maintain a relatively consistent lifestyle with these patients and just be aware that fluctuations in activity and diet and things like that can impact the the need for insulin. Right. No, I a hundred percent agree. And so insulin, that's our mainstay of treatment, at least in our dogs and then in cats who are insulin dependent. Obviously, then insulin is going to come into play for them. But the other things, I think you mentioned this earlier, like in a cat, you could try a low carb, high fiber diet. You could try oral treatment first. You could try weight loss. There's different things you could try in the cat to try to get them to become regulated without insulin. But those, uh, the dogs, and then again, the insulin dependent cats are, are going to have to have insulin. And most of them, in my opinion, require twice daily insulin. There are some mm-hmm. cats that seems like we could get down that really we're riding that edge of needing it or not needing it where we could get away with once a day or lower, you know, half unit or a unit dose. But it seems like um, most animals are going to require twice a day, day dosing to be regulated. Yeah. And, you know, uh, one thing I want to say, I think that maybe uh, just so no one's confused that's listening. I think that maybe you said a low carb, high fiber diet for a cat. And I'm guessing you meant to say low carb, high protein diet yeah, for a right. cat. You're right. Yeah. So you got to watch me. I do that. I do that stuff all the time. <laughs> words, words, you know, things are like flying around in my brain and the words don't come out the way I want them to, but just welcome for clarity, to my world. <laughs> yeah, just for clarity, let's make sure that, yeah, it's, it's a high protein diet yeah. for these diabetic cats. And then I agree with you in practice. I typically started dogs on Humulin twice a day. Now, Humulin is a big no-no for cats. I know that some people will try it, but it just doesn't work. So cats really are going to need Prozinc. And now Prozinc is labeled for use in dogs, too. And actually, it's labeled for once-a-day use. But in my opinion, what I always found was it's a lot harder to get the symptoms of diabetes under control with once daily use of insulin versus twice daily. And so for me, that was usually in practice, you know, my main, my main go-to. And then of course you have Vetsilin, which is also out there. And I should mention, you know, Prozinc insulin is an on-label use. Vetsilin insulin is an on-label use. The Humulin that I mentioned, that's an off-label use, right? That's a human insulin that that you'd be using off-label. And then there are lots of other human insulins that we use off-label in pets too. Probably most commonly that we're using are your Glargine insulin, Lantus, or Detamir be the others that would be more common. Yeah. And it seems like it was oftentimes the cats that we were reaching for some of these other ones for. Not that we didn't do it for the dogs, but it seems like the cats are the ones that that I always felt like I was getting off the beaten track with these other insulins trying to get them regulated with. Yeah, I think that you're right about that. I mean, I think sometimes dogs need things that are different too, but the cats do seem like they are more difficult to regulate, which may also be because they could be, they could have um, acromegaly, right? And we probably won't go into that today, but just don't forget that if you have a cat that's insulin resistant, or not insulin resistant, but is non-responsive to insulin therapy, especially if it has that great big broad school and is a great big cat, maybe has underlying heart disease, then, you know, acromegaly can be playing a role there as well. So we skipped over fructosamine, I think, which 
we want to make sure we get that talked about because that is beneficial in your not only your monitoring but your diagnosis too right, right? so when did when did you use fructosamine in practice i'm just curious i used it mostly in cats that i wondered if they were diabetic or not so i couldn't tell when they came in and like the high 200s and I was, and the owners were talking about symptoms that seemed like they could fit with diabetes, but it wasn't quite there where I could say, yep, it's diabetic. Um, so then I would reach for fructosamine to be that, uh, that deciding factor because it's going to give you that, you know, it's going to look back over the last several weeks and tell you whether or not they've been regulated. If it was normal, then they're likely not diabetic. But if it's abnormal or it's high, then, then, it, then it supports a diagnosis of diabetes. Yeah, right. I, I would use fructosamine in the same way, right? So if I'm looking at a CBC in a cat, and I'm, or excuse me, a chemistry in a cat, and I'm going, hmm, is this a stress hyperglycemia or is this, you know, a diabetic cat? I mean, because it, cats can get so stressed that their glucose will go over the renal threshold and they can have hyperglycemia and glucosuria with stress. It's less likely that they'll have glucosuria with stress, but it's possible. And so if you're wondering it, that's what I use fructosamine for too. Now in the dogs and in cats that were clearly diabetic, I always try to get a baseline fructosamine too, so that it can help you with your monitoring of therapy as you move through the treatment for diabetes. Right. So let's talk quickly. We don't have a ton of time left. So let's talk quickly about monitoring, because I think this is a big area where we don't necessarily all do the same thing. And I don't know that there's necessarily always a right answer either. But for monitoring, we obviously have spot glucose checks, we have glucose curves, and then we have the fructosamine, which we kind of already talked about. Tell me about your feelings on glucose curves. And then let's not forget that there's the new Freestyle Libra device mm-hmm. out, which may change or, or change the way people were doing curves or when they were doing curves or how they were doing them. Yeah, there are definitely some internists that are in research and there's some good papers on continuous glucose monitoring. And the Freestyle Libre is one of the devices for humans that's popular for use in dogs and cats. I think the most important thing to realize is that none of these are none of these things are perfect. Certainly a spot glucose check is not perfect, right? Because that's just a moment in time. And especially when these patients are coming into the hospital, especially cats, that may be certainly very falsely elevated. And so, you know, for me, I like the fructosamine monitoring in practice, but I also think there's a place for a glucose curve. And man, if you can do a glucose curve at home, teach the owners how to draw blood and send them home with an alpha track or some type of glucose monitoring device, it's so much better than if they're in the hospital or than, as we've already mentioned, a continuous glucose monitor is fantastic if you know, uh, you have the expertise in using them. I think there is a learning curve associated with them, you know, and, and learning how to use them. But I think once you do, they they can definitely be a really beneficial. But I think the most important thing is to just remember that sugar bounces all over the place, which makes it really hard. Fructosamine is less likely to be affected by your stress hyperglycemia, right? So if right. you have a patient that is just a basket case in the hospital or when it gets blood drawn or when it, you know, has an injection, fructosamine is probably going to be, you know, a better test to evaluate their diabetes, but none of them are perfect. No, I agree. I, I relied as much on anything as the owner's report of you, clinical signs. You read my mind. I completely agree. Because in veterinary medicine, the most important thing, since these patients aren't living to be 80 and 90 years old, the most important thing is that we're controlling the clinical signs and 
we're keeping them from developing DKA and we're keeping them from developing chronic infections because of yeah. immunosuppression. So, you know, I just want these dogs and cats to not be PUPD, to not be dropping weight and to not be polyphagic if possible. That's the most important thing. I completely agree. So if they're clinically doing well, I'm not too concerned about what their numbers look like. That's that, I'm the same way. I don't chase the numbers if they're doing yep. well. All right. We are, yeah. we are running out of time. We are over time. So do you have any last <laughs> minute um, things you want to jump in and say about diabetes before we wrap it up? You know, I always do. <laughs> and so I guess the last little tidbit that I will say is I don't really, I'm not a fan. I don't know about you, but unless I have a very, very, in tune owner. I'm not a fan of monitoring dogs and cats sugars at home on a regular basis daily. I think that just adds stress to the life of the pet and the life of the owner. And so, yeah, for, for doing a curve at home and things like that, as I mentioned already, that's fine. But you know, for me, I'm not a huge fan of that. I think it makes it more complex. Yeah. I, I would agree with you completely. And, you know, do the curves on the uh, the appropriate time intervals that uh, your veterinarian, the veterinarian's recommending. And then otherwise let's let the pets be pets. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, I appreciate your time as always. I know you're busy. We will be back with you soon for another endocrine episode. All right. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.